Amen. If you'll turn to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, uh, Exodus chapter 20, it is page 61 in the black uh, Bibles uh, around you. We continue our Advent series looking very briefly at just these moments in especially Old Testament redemptive history and and showing uh, sort of the story of God's steadfast love. We come now to Exodus 20, uh, the introduction to God's giving of the law to his people. We'll look certainly at the context, but for now, just hear verse 2 as our preaching text this morning. Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. God, would you bless and add your understanding to the reading and now preaching of your holy word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, the order matters in many things. The order that you put things matters, right? Uh, when you were baking your Thanksgiving pie, the order matters, right? Uh, you don't put the filling down and then try to put the crust underneath somehow. Uh, it would be quite a mess. Um, wedding vows are not taken at the 20-year anniversary. They might be renewed or remembered, but the vows are actually what help get you to the 20-year anniversary. Or when we speak to our children... Uh, even about the rules of the house, the order matters, right? Uh, Listen to these two options. Number one, uh, children, if you do your chores, if you are good to your siblings, if you obey us, then you could be part of this family. Do you see the order? But what if we reverse it? You are a part of this family. You are loved. And in this family, we put our dishes away, (laughs) or in this family, we treat our siblings with love. Do you see the world of difference that that makes? The order matters. Today, we continue our Advent series where we're looking at the the steadfast love of the Lord. We're looking at, um, before we get into some Old Testament texts in January, uh, Zephaniah and Genesis, etc., I want to give us an overview of the Old Testament, just bird's eye Uh, you know, sweeping view. And we looked last week at Genesis 3.15 where God made this promise of steadfast love. And we'll look at that again in a moment. And we come all the way now to Exodus 20 in the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. And yet the order matters. Here God sets the order. Here God places the accent mark on his steadfast love as he is the Lord their God. He has saved them. And now this is how They are to live. And so last week was the promise of steadfast love. Today, then, we will focus on the provider of steadfast love. Uh, The provider of steadfast love. If if it's helpful for you to follow the outline, that's that's there for you in the bulletin. And as we look at the provider of steadfast love, the Lord himself, we're going to look at, uh, number one, his name, uh, number two, his covenant, and number three, his salvation. So first, his name, the provider of steadfast love, his name. You'll notice verse 2, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. 
Now, to get here, we've, a lot's happened since Genesis 3.15. Uh, and so, again, we're doing a bird's eye view, but it's good for us to say, what, what, how do we get from Genesis 3.15 to Exodus 20? So first, let's just get from Genesis 1 to Exodus 1. Um, and then someday we'll zoom in on the book of Genesis and, 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 and dig into sort of every tree and branch. But for now, let's, let's get the forest. Um, uh, we start in Genesis uh, 1 with the creation account. By Genesis 3, uh, we have what's called the fall. Adam and Eve sin against God. They eat of the fruit that he said not to eat of. Um, and then in Genesis 3, we have God uh, showing them the consequences, the, the spiritual death that comes, the, the thorns of the ground, the pain in childbirth. And right in the midst of God, um, as we said, even as he's uh, proclaiming the curse, it, he can't even finish the curse without the promise of steadfast love in there as well in Genesis 3.15. Uh, and we said that in summary, the promise is that there will be a people, always, from the, from the fall all the way to Revelation, there will always be a people of God. He will always preserve a remnant. And number two, there will come from that people a son one day. Uh, for them, it was one day. For us, we know he has come as we celebrated Advent, who will crush the head of the serpent. He will come in victory. And so really from Genesis 3.15 onward, we're in this big category of the story of redemption. God promises redemption. The rest of redemptive history, why we call it redemptive history, is the working out of that promise. There will be a people, there will come a son who will crush the head of the serpent. And so if, if you fly through Genesis, you have Cain and Abel. Uh, you have uh, Noah and God preserving a people there from a worldwide flood. Uh, you have Abraham. And, and we'll zoom in on uh, Abraham in, in, in the months to come, but the promise is very much reinvigorated and restated and, and given to Abraham that from him will come a people. They will have the land. The nations will be, will be blessed through them. Uh, you know, as, as you know, Father Abraham had many sons, right, and, and daughters. Um, and, and in this line from Abraham is just a flowing out of Genesis 3.15 uh, from Isaac, that child of promise that God asked in Genesis 22. We just saw he tested Abraham, but God provides. Isaac goes on to have Jacob, uh, who's renamed Israel. Uh, Israel, Jacob has the 12 uh, who become the 12 tribes of Israel, including Joseph, who is sold into slavery, but is risen up in prominence in Egypt. And you start to see the promise of Genesis 3.15 in that in Exodus 1, 6 through 10, it says the people uh, were fruitful and increased greatly. What does that remind you of? But God's, uh, God's command in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. There will be a people, and now this people is growing in Egypt. And that brings us to the beginning of Exodus chapter 1. And the, the tension begins in Exodus 1, 6 through 10, because they multiply, they grow exceedingly strong. The land is filled with them. And in masterful storytelling, uh, Moses says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So God's people, God is providing in his steadfast love, they're growing. Now there's a king who doesn't know the history, doesn't know Joseph, and sees a threat and as you might know, in Exodus 1 and the chapters following, we see a, a decree goes out that the, uh, the male children will be killed. Uh, but Moses is uh, saved uh, from this. Uh, he is provided for. And in the midst of this, God's people begin to groan 
because they are under the yoke of slavery in Egypt. And Exodus 2, 23-25 says, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Um, it's amazing, his steadfast love. He's promised himself to this people, and now he will act. His people have groaned, he will act. And he does this through Moses primarily. And you start to see a pattern that we'll see throughout the rest of this series, that that promise, there will be a people, there's a collective sense. Um, there will come a son, singular, Jesus will come one day. And so there will be a people, and all throughout redemptive history, God is raising up individuals like Abraham, like Noah, uh, like David next week, but here, Moses, uh, a mediator uh, who will come and rescue his people. And so we see Moses uh, drawn out of the river by uh, Pharaoh's daughter. He's raised in Pharaoh's house. He uh, kills an Egyptian who's harming one of his countrymen. He flees to Midian. Uh, he marries and begins a family there. And then in Exodus 3, you have that famous burning bush um, incident where God speaks to him. And he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And he says to go uh, to the people. Um, and Moses, uh, just like in all of our stories that we continue to tell, he's this reluctant hero who says, why me? <laughs> Send someone else. Uh, but God says, I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. It's the very mountain that we are now in in Exodus 20. Mount Sinai, as God speaks to his people. Well, as you know, the Exodus account, God gives powerful signs, these plagues over Egypt culminating in the death of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. And God puts it this way, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that they may serve me. If you refuse to let them go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So that we have the Passover where uh, the lambs are slaughtered, God's uh, people's firstborn sons are spared. He brings them out of Egypt to the Red Sea. They're trapped. The Egyptians are coming upon them. The people are fretting. And I love what Moses says, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And God parts the seas. They come into the wilderness. The people grumble. God provides for them. And they come now to Mount Sinai. And uh, this is a powerful scene. They come to the mountain. It's quaking and, and gurgling, and there's flame and there's smoke. And they're like, Moses, you go up. <laughs> uh, we'll stay down here. In fact, God has them stay at a certain point. Moses is the intercessor. Uh, but the people here in Exodus 20 hear the voice of God. And what does God reveal to his people? He's called them out of Egypt, he's brought them to this mountain. What is this God who made them, who redeemed them, what does he have to say to them? Well, first he reveals himself to them. He reveals himself and his name. We see this in Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He is the great I am. You probably see in your English translation the, the Lord in all capitals. Um, this is God's name. Uh, we don't know exactly how it would have been pronounced. 
Uh, the Jews at the time revered God's name so much so that they pulled the vowels out of it. They didn't want to speak the name in full. Uh, and so they took the, the consonants of, um, uh, of uh, uh, for a starting place and then they spliced in the consonants of a Hebrew word for the Lord, Adonai, and they put those together. Uh, and so that's why there's still debates to this day. Is it Jehovah? Is it Yahweh? We don't know exactly how it was pronounced, but God is giving to them uh, what some have called his proper name. His proper name. What, what God does this? What God gathers a people and then speaks his name to them in a way that they can understand. Uh, but this God does this. This is the same God in Exodus 3 who revealed himself to Moses. Moses says, not only who am I to go, but who am I going to tell them sent me? <laughs> um, and God says this in Exodus 3. He says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is I am, just like in English, it sounds strange. Tell them I am sent you. Uh, just like in English and Hebrew, a word like I am, is, we use it all the time, right? It's, it's, it's a utility word, and it has to do with being. And, and God is, is the uncreated one. No one made him. There is none like him. All life flows from him. Uh, this is who he is. And, and so that word, the Lord or Yahweh, it sort of encapsulates this and is the name of the great I am, or as I said, the God's proper name. Uh, one theologian, uh, uh, Dr. Scott Swain, argues this way, that all other names of God are, in one sense, commentaries upon this name of God. Even uh, the name God, Elohim, is, uh, is a title. It's, it's saying something about God and his role, who he is. There are lowercase Elohim. There are lowercase gods. He is the God of gods. But no other being shares this name, Yahweh. Uh, other things like Lord or King, he is the King of kings, Lord of lords, but only he is Yahweh, the great I am. Uh, the great I am. And so Swain puts it this way, like the sign of the burning bush itself, the name Yahweh is unique and unprecedented. That's why God says in verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Again, uh, throughout history, some, uh, some Jews, uh, if, if they need to dispose of a, a certain parchment or writing or something that has the name upon it, they would bury the parchment or ritually burn it. They would never just throw it away. Um, there's a reverence for the name, and, and this carries into the New Testament. What did we just pray? Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Can you fathom that the God of the universe has revealed his name, his identity to us in a way that we can understand? Uh, but even more, it's not just that he's putting it out there. He is placing his name upon us. He is naming us through him. 
in Numbers 6, 27, uh, you know, you know the, the blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. In verse 27 of number 7, it says, uh, so they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. What God puts his name upon a people? Or in Matthew 28, we are baptized into the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, identified with the one true and living God. Uh, maybe the closest analogy, and even in our culture, we've talked about uh, adoption, that when a child is adopted, uh, it, even in our culture, legally, the birth certificate is changed uh, so that their name is, is changed. It, it's as if they were born with that name. Uh, this gets closer to this idea that God's name is placed upon us. We are the people of the living God. And this this name, why are we saying that God is the only provider of steadfast love? Because his name reveals that he is love. He is life. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. John 5, 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He is the great I am the source of all life, light, of all good, of all blessing. And this is true of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who share the one name, a Yahweh. Remember uh, Jesus uh, in the garden when, uh, when they said they're looking for Jesus and, and, and he says, I am he, or literally I am. What do they do? They fall back in fear because he is the same great I am. And so the order matters. Before the Ten Commandments, uh, we are reminded whose we are. Uh, we're reminded of his name, his identity. What, people, what other people can say that they know their God like we know ours. So his name. Number two, uh, the provider of steadfast love, we look now at his covenant. At his covenant. Uh, he not only says, I am the Lord... His name, his identity, but I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. Um, again, who, what other God has this personal, I am your God and you are uh, my people? I, I was up with my family uh, this last weekend for my dad's retirement, and, and sort of a, a funny story about our aunt uh, came up that. Um, Someone in the family was being bullied uh, in middle school, and, and, and my aunt uh, would say, uh, just give me a list of names, and I'll go beat them up. <laughs> uh, she never did. I think she would have if we didn't stop her. Um, but but that, sense of, uh, that sense of family, of, of belonging, of, uh, it, it, it gets close to what we're talking about here. His name being placed upon us, that we are, uh, he is the Lord, our God. And this is really the language of covenant, um, the language of covenant, uh, this series could have easily just focused on these different covenants throughout redemptive history. Um, a covenant, uh, by one definition, is a, is a life and death bond that is sovereignly administered. God promises himself to his people. Again, starting in Genesis 3.15, there will be a people, there will come a son. And then Abraham, he makes a covenant with Abraham. I will be your God. You will be my people. From you will come a multitude. And we, and we just see this covenant, this one covenant of grace working out over and over again throughout redemptive history so that even here, 
were reminded, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The order matters. He reminds them of the covenant first and then the commandments. And we have what's been called the Emmanuel principle. Uh, we, we tend to sing about and think about Emmanuel, God with us around Christmas time. But really, that's a good summary of the covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. And we see that language here. And it's even in the midst of Israel's failings uh, soon after this. I mean, God is speaking to his people. He gives them the Ten Commandments and others. Um, and then Moses tarries on the mountain, and they make golden calves to worship. And they say, uh, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Um, and even then, I mean, God's anger burns against them. There's consequences for their sin. In Exodus 33, we see Moses. It wasn't just bringing the people out of Egypt. He's now interceding for them. And, and, and listen to Moses' logic as he's praying to God. Because uh, God basically says, I, I won't go with you anymore. I won't destroy the people, but I won't go with you. Moses says, essentially, you must go with us. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? What's Moses doing? He's, to use biblical language, he's reminding God of the covenant. Now, does God need reminded of anything? No. But God has bound himself by his own volition to a covenant with his people, to be their God, and he his people. There will always be a people. There will come from those people the Son. And Moses is just, is just bringing that up, saying, God, you have promised. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You're going with us. Your being our God is what makes us different than any other nation. If you don't go with us, there's no point in us going. Other tribes may have gods that they appease, or other peoples might have so-called gods that are not alive at all, but you are the living and true God. So remember your promises to us. And Moses prays in faith because he knows God is a God who keeps his promises. Genesis 3.15 is still in force all the way through this story and all the way to Christ. Right, We've probably experienced uh, people in our life who are good at keeping promises and people who are not good at keeping promises. I remember on my grandpa's deathbed, he, he said to me, keep your word, it's, it's all you have. And that stuck with me. And I've noticed in my own life when I fail or when I see someone who really keeps their word. But God is, unlike even the most faithful human being, he what does he swear by? Hebrews 6.13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Right? We, even in court, uh, we might put our hand on a Bible or uh, appeal to some greater authority or people who aren't even religious might even swear to God on some level. There's an instinctual, I need something higher than me, but God is the great I am. And so when he made a promise, he swore by himself. That same name, Yahweh, is on the line for him to keep his promises to his people. This is the kind of grounding and assurance that no false gospel can give you. 
Be reminded the gospel simply means good news. It's, it's a proclamation. Other religions, other false gospels might have some sort of mighty being who demands something of you. But, there, but there's no other God who swears by his own name that he would fulfill the covenant. Uh, that even after we had failed, that he would send his son to die in our place. Other false gospels will promise to give you life, but they can't. They have no grounding. They have no authority. But God himself, the great I am, promises to you that if you will receive and rest upon Christ alone, you will have salvation. And it's in Jesus Christ. And in the book of Romans, uh, Paul quotes Joel that says, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The Lord in all caps. Anyone who calls upon Yahweh will be saved. And then he says, if you uh, call upon the name uh, of Jesus, the Lord, you will be saved. What is he saying? Uh, That Jesus is the great I am. And if you receive and rest upon him alone, you will have salvation. And so we think then, lastly, of his salvation. We've looked at his name, his covenant, and now the salvation. And and that's the tail end of verse 2. He he said who he is. I am the Lord. I am the Lord your God, covenanted with you, who has done what? Who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Out of the house of slavery. Uh, If you glance back up at uh, chapter 19, um, verses... starting in verse 4, he sort of expounds on this. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will keep and obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The order matters, right? I am the Lord your God. I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. I have brought you to myself to be my people. Now, therefore, you shall have no other gods before you. Now, therefore, revere my holy name. Now, therefore, do not murder. Do you see the order? Salvation first and then obedience flows from salvation. You'll see the same pattern in the New Testament letters. Uh, Often the first half of the letter is reminding you, this is who God is. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Just truth after truth. Christian, be reminded. This is the grounding. Now, therefore, love one another. Now, therefore, uh, give with a generous heart. Now, therefore, go and proclaim the gospel. Uh, The order matters. God saves his people, and then he says, you are in my family. This is how we live in our family. They were saved from slavery in Egypt. We are saved from a a greater slavery, a slavery to sin and death. Romans 6 reminds us that um, uh, one uh, paraphrase might be that you're going to have to serve somebody. And in Romans 6, it it basically says, you might think you're free, but you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. The way that God has made us, we either obey our flesh and the devil or we are freed through Jesus Christ 
debt paid for, freed from the power of sin, and now slaves of righteousness, slaves of Christ, who is a good and gentle master. And that's where we are saved from. As we think of applying these amazing truths of God's name, God's covenant, his salvation, this provider of steadfast love, let me just end with three thoughts. A Christian, we need to get the order right. I think so many missteps in our Christian walk, certainly in our theology at times, but often in our Christian walk, is we just we reverse the order. We sort of we go first to the Ten Commandments and think, oh, if I could just keep these, then maybe God will be my God and I will be his people. We're probably too sharp on our theology to say it like that, but yet we live as if that's true. We need to get the order right. We need to major first in who God is, the steadfast love that flows from him, what he has done in our salvation, who is holding this thing together, but this God who has promised He who called you is faithful, he will surely do it. And then we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. If you can get the order right, it changes everything. Uh, Then our obedience is not a burden, it's a joyful outworking of his steadfast love through us. We need to get the order right. Number two, we need to meditate on God himself. On God himself. Um, we, We call this in... Uh, systematic theology, theology proper. Uh, This is where we start. Who is God? What is he like? What is his nature? What, What is his character? What does scripture tell us about him? Because God is revealing himself to his people. And I think sometimes we leave this to the academics or the seminarians, or we think, oh yeah, when someone's first becoming a believer, they need to like understand the Trinity. But okay, once you get enough, sort of move on to other things. But we will spend the rest of eternity never plumbing the depths of the great I am. And so we need to meditate on God himself. As you're reading throughout Scripture, ask, what does this reveal about who God is? What is this saying about my God? And how could I pray and worship in response to that is a good place to start. And number three, we need to be assured and motivated by his steadfast love and his covenant love. God himself willingly bound himself by his covenant to rescue, gather, and glorify a people. This should motivate us, assure us. The order matters. He says, I am the Lord. Yahweh, I am the Lord, your God. I have made a covenant with you, my people. I have brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery to sin and death. Now serve me as you were made to do. Uh, Christian, get this order right and you will experience the joy and delight of serving your great God and King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, that it shows us, uh, that you have spoken to us, you have revealed who you are to your people. Uh, That is grace in and of itself. And we thank you for revealing Jesus Christ to us, that he came and died and rose again, uh, that we might be your people, being formed after his likeness. And so I pray that you would help us uh, to be faithful uh, to you today and every day this week, we pray in Jesus' name.